This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Tiny resistances were a kind of healing in a weeping place is just one of the many powerful and lyric aphorisms that ennoble the prophets, the New York Times bestselling debut novel from Robert Jones Jr. The Prophets is a story about the forbidden union between two enslaved young men on a deep south plantation, the refuge they find in each other, and a betrayal that threatens their existence. Robert Jones Jr. is a writer and thinker and the creator and curator of the social justice social media community Son of Baldwin. He has written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Essence, and the Paris Review. Today, in a far-reaching conversation, we explore how the prophets came to life and why he felt it so important to ensure queer black love was neither denigrated nor ignored within it. His desire to correct the historical record, learning rebellion from his mother, and making sure that queer black people know they are loved, valued, and have a purposeful place in the world. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Robert Jones Jr. Robert, thank you so much for being here and for agreeing to be a guest. I'm busy being Black. I have followed the Son of Baldwin for ages, and I am like, I'm honored that you're here. Josh, thank you so much for having me. Um, everyone tells me that your show is so incredible, so I feel grateful and humbled to be here. Thank you. How's your heart? Um, troubled. Um, the state of the world has me um, in a little bit of terror. Um, the shift right, um, where even those who consider themselves liberal or on the left are super willing to capitulate to the, um, the taste, the wants, the desires of the far right, um, appease their um, sort of violence, um, and that makes me wonder where someone like me fits in, where I can be safe, where I can be free. Um, so my heart is indeed troubled. You know, I was doing my research and you said in another interview, I think it must have been recorded shortly after the election in 2020, 
there was a bit of hope. You had a bit of hope that new leadership might usher in a new era. How are you feeling about that now? I don't want to say hopeless, but the hope that I had for that leadership is shot to pieces. They are not interested in moving the society forward, in progress, in equity, in fairness, in safety, in healing. They're interested in the same things that the madman who was just in office was interested in, power and um, the theft of resources and um, lining the pockets of billionaires. Um, that's the main interest. And I, I think I've come to understand that that's all this country is about. That's all it has ever been about, irrespective of who's in office. Um, so again, I, my, I'm racking my mind to try to find um, a solution in terms of where can I go where I don't have to encounter that pathology. I mean, it's, it's, it's here in the UK as well, right? This, I mean, there's obviously a, a great number of differences between the US and the UK, but white supremacy is certainly not a difference, right? That we, we share that. And Indeed. the delusion that comes with white supremacy, actually, I, I have it here um, in the Paris Review. Um, you wrote, the refusal of Americans to call evil by its name is an appeal to their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Whiteness mm. and therefore Americanness can only function under false pretenses of its own superiority and its own innocence. And I just read that and I thought that's the UK too, right? You might say the OG of white supremacy. <laughs> I, I was just about to say the origin, its story mm -hmm. is right there in the UK. And that, you know, the, I, you know, all of my work puts me in close contact and community with queer black people. And there isn't a single one of us who isn't looking elsewhere for something better. There's, there's this kind of continual search to your point, where can I go and not encounter this pathology? The part, the difficult thing is that I have to be safe in two ways, my blackness and my queerness, which then just shrinks any viable opportunities down to almost nothing. Um, so it's, it's, again, my heart is troubled and it's terrifying to live in a world like this. Still in the 21st century, we can't get it together. Mm. Where do you find refuge then? In the word, um, when I am writing and reading, um, and that has always been the case since I was, um, a little boy and first my father bought me my first comic books when I was four and um, I found safety, um, fun, imagination, creativity in reading and then eventually writing. That is my only safe space. Um, I grew up black and queer and my queerness sort of manifested early in terms of I understood what I liked from a very young age. I mean, like three or four, I had crushes on boys. Um, and my family and friends of the family noticed the queerness because I was 
not the most masculine boy. I, I like to play with dolls. I jumped double dutch. Um, Wonder Woman was my favorite superhero. Um, Valerie from Josie and the Pussycats was my favorite um, cartoon character. So it was to them obvious because I was gravitating toward these things that they thought were feminine or that mm -hmm. they perceive as feminine. So I had no safe space. I would um, go to school um, in a primarily white neighborhood and be teased for being black and, and for being perceived as weak because of the femininity. And then I would go home and be policed relentlessly for being perceived as queer. So the only refuge I ever had was in books. And that still remains the case today. Mm. There's so much about that that resonates with me. You know, one of my earliest memories is me interviewing my sister's dolls after watching Oprah. You know, I felt I felt so drawn to her. Um, but also that, you know, when I came out, my mom said, you know, I, I've known since you were four because you were clip clopping around the house in my heels all the time. You know, there's this understanding the family has, even if they don't approve. There's some, they are some of the first to see it. And, and books, too, were the place where I escaped. I don't know if, if, I'm, if I ever pursued safety in that way or if I would use that language, but certainly I felt that uh, books were an escape pod. Yes. Maybe escape is a better um, descriptor than where I found safety, because the truth of the matter is, um, and this is such a dark, um, pessimistic way to think about it, but there's, I don't, I don't know of a place that's safe for Black queer people. I, I don't know. Even amongst ourselves, there's danger. Um, be, and that's by design. Um, the, the, the system's goal is, um, and James Baldwin said this, um, is yes, it's going to attack you and try to destroy you, but after a while, it gets too busy and too lazy. So it has to convince you to do the work for it. And so you begin to take on that work of destroying yourself. Um, and so white supremacist capitalist patriarchy is so successful because what it does is it makes us coveted. It makes us erase ourselves, harm ourselves um, in the pursuit of trying to be like the thing that's destroying us. Yes, we're, for listeners, we're both shaking our hands. <laughs> yeah, I was just um, speaking to my best friend this afternoon. He's writing a piece about um, homophobia and homophobia in the Black community and not the kind of way that we're used to hearing about it, which is that Black people are more homophobic than everybody else, because that's not true. The data doesn't bear that out, but rather what its, what its utility is what purpose it serves and to try to, we're having this conversation to help frame this piece, right? What, what are we asking people? What is he asking people to think about or to do or to understand as it relates to homophobia? And I think that that constant questioning is, is, is Baldwinian, is that that's the right way to say it, right? That um, is that we're always looking at the, the, the ways that we are compelled to do things and to interrogate them and critique them and maybe try a better way. That's important work that your friend is doing um, because I think one of the hallmarks of us living in this um, hierarchical system is that the people at the bottom always want somebody beneath them so that they can feel a little higher. Toni Morrison says, 
Um, if you can only be tall because someone is on their knees, then you have a very serious problem. And that, that is what we learn from oppression. We, that the strangest thing about oppression is it doesn't teach you to be more empathetic to other people who are oppressed. It only teaches you how to oppress. Um, and so black people um, are perceived as more homophobic than anyone else, but really as your friend is trying to unpack, is that there's a utility to homophobia. It, it makes you like the poor white person, for example, they're not rich, but at least they're not black. So now the black person has to say, I'm not white, but at least I'm not queer. Hey, that's what Devin Carbato wrote in his essay about heterosexual privilege. And I quote it all the time. He said, you know, in this world, sometimes the only privilege that black men have is that they are not a punk, a sissy, or a faggot, right? That's mm -hmm. all they have. And I think that these understandings, because they are understandings versus excuses, right? These understandings of how people survive, often at the expense of other people, but how people survive in a system designed to crush them is worthy consideration. It helps us all understand our place or what we're experiencing rather, a little more fully. And I think if we're conscious enough helps us to understand how we're not innocent and what we wanna do with that implicated guilt of participating in a system that crushes other people, crushes us, um, and seeking to not be um, accountable for that <laughs> by saying things like, well, um, I'm black and queer, so I'm oppressed. That absolves me of any responsibility. No, it doesn't. Because even if you're black and queer, you are probably transphobic too, right? Because our, our black trans sisters, you, they're, they're, you know, people are, are coming for their necks. And sometimes it's us, it's the black queer people who are looking at the black trans people and saying, you're not a part. <laughs> um, so there's always this um, thing and which we learn from the system that we're in. And it's sort of tired um, and time for us to, um, in addition to wanting to hold everyone else accountable for their wrongs, to hold ourselves accountable for ours. Goosebumps. Because that is it, right? You know, I spoke to Juby Ariola Headley, the poet, and he said, you know, how am I making mistake? How am I making space for your mistakes? I'm not making space for mine, right? That there's this, this reckoning we have to do with ourselves so that we can also make space for other people to have their reckonings and to feel supported in those reckonings as well. Or rather called in supporting might be a little bit, <laughs> might be a little too generous, but yeah. Do you see your work as, as part of a prompt to get people to think about their position in the world? Like what, what do you see as, do you have a sense of your purpose is maybe a better word? Way to just ask. Oh, lovely question. Um, I do know that when I set out to write The Prophets, what was foremost in my mind was that I wanted to write a wrong, that I wanted to reinscribe into the cultural landscape the Black queer ancestor who has been erased. Um, because, you know, you're told in Black communities, there's this myth that on the African continent, no one was queer or trans. 
every single being was cisgender and heterosexual until Europe came with um, their corruptions. My research says that the opposite is true, that the continent of Africa was so diverse, it would make your head spin, that there were so many ways of thinking about gender and sexuality that the American or the British, um, does, we don't even have the vocabulary to understand it these indigenous understandings of human nature and human existence. But then Europe came in and the Christian missionaries and in some cases, Islamic missionaries came in and said, this is disgusting and convinced us that our own ways of being were sinful and wrong. And that empowered me to say, I'm gonna write this book even if I, I get a lot of flack for it even if I'm accused of um, supporting the gay agenda, of trying to emasculate black men, um, of being blasphemous by critiquing Christianity and its role in um, black people's um, struggles. But I had to write it anyway. I, I had to write it because as you say, um, it's a prompt for people to one, understand that the black queer person has always been here. That what you're doing to the black queer person is the work of white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. I don't care how black your skin is. And um, I'm gonna give voice to these ancestors who are whispering to me and asking me to witness their testimony. So, so what I hope people get, and I think they are getting it, um, and I can tell that from the people who um, connect with the work and the people who discard it, that this work is doing something to um, sort of disturb the status quo. I have to tell you, um, I, I just, I was swept away reading the book and the language, which everyone keeps talking about, right? In all of your interviews and all the press about it, it's it's all about the language and that's it's immensely important. But for me, I feel like you've given us a book, us queer black people, a book that's really ours. And that feels singular and important. And that that's the bit that I'm holding on to about all of this, that you've given us something that that we can hold. And it's it's really it feels like it's ours for us. And I wanted that to be unapologetically so, that um, this book is first and foremost for the black queer trans child who is right now being told um, they have no legitimacy, that they shouldn't exist, that not even the creator of the universe can love them as they are. Um, I want them to know that that's a lie um, and that um, they, they are here and they exist because they were supposed to. Um, and so Samuel and Isaiah, the two leads of the book, but also Kosai and Alewa, who are sort of the precursor to Samuel and Isaiah, um, all function in a way that the love between them, unmistakable. Whether how, how people react to that love is a, is a separate issue, 
but I wanted it to be clear that for these four people, their love was solid as a rock. And no matter what else was going on around them, that love was gonna hold because it is um, natural and um, it is supposed to be. So this is part of righting the wrong, right? It's connected to this. It's not only correcting the historical erasure, but also to fill in those gaps so that a new generation of young black queer trans people, queer and trans people know that they should be here. They're here by design. They're here on purpose. Right. Um, one of the things that uh, I wanted to um, make clear in this book was um, we don't really get to see Black queer love in pop culture very often. We get to see um, a Black queer person alone or a Black queer person as the fetishized object of some white queer person. Um, but we never, we, we rarely, I, should, I shouldn't say never because James Earl Hardy's B-Boy Blues film that I got to see is just astounding in terms of representing Black queer love. Um, but often we're told that Black queer love is impossible because queer people can't love, that, that we're only perversions, that we're limited only to sex. And there's nothing wrong with sex at all. I, I think lust is a part of the human experience. But to, to try to trap us there and say that we're not capable of other things is the dehumanizing part of it that I wanted to sort of say, no, it's both. It's love and lust. And there's nothing wrong with either one of those things. And we're capable of both. Busy Being Black will return in just a moment. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Josh Rivers, and this is Busy Being Black. Today, a conversation with Robert Jones Jr. His debut novel, The Prophets, is a beautiful and lyric story about the forbidden union between two enslaved young men on a deep south plantation. There, there's, I don't want to give too much of the book away. Um, you know, the, for, for listeners in the show notes, you'll find a link to where you can buy The Prophets, and I highly recommend you do. But one of the parts I want to focus on for this conversation that really stood out to me is that Samuel and Isaiah's love is not denied and it's not denigrated. And I, I was reading Amos's chapter when that occurred to me. I was like, wait a minute, because you speak so, write so beautifully about their relationship all the way through. But I was reading Amos's chapter and I was like, oh my gosh, I see what he's done here, <laughs> right? Like the way that, that you write about it, but also how everyone else observes their love, I think is so beautiful. Uh, talk to me about that decision, about why it was important for their love to be seen. You know, um, the book was initially going to be only from one character's point of view. It was going to be 
a fictionalized slave narrative. Um, and it was, the original title was Sing Hannibal Bear Witness. And Hannibal eventually became Isaiah. Um, and, and Isaiah was gonna tell this story of, of his love, his lost love and, and so on and so forth. But then I, I thought Isaiah's point of view alone isn't um, broad enough. It, it doesn't have the scope that I need in order to tell this story across generations. Um, I need to bring in other perspectives so that what's witnessed here, the, the, the thing that's being testified to is the love between Samuel and Isaiah. And that is how um, I developed characters like Maggie and Amos and even the enslavers, Paul and Ruth and James, um, to each um, tell us what they see when they see Samuel and Isaiah together. Um, and even the, the people, the characters in the book who don't approve are pissed because there's something so pure and right about them being together. And they don't wanna admit that to themselves um, because of what that might um, open up or, or expose them to or expose about them. Um, and that was really important because I, what I noticed at the base of homophobia is, I, and I, I'm, I used to think that homophobia was the wrong word to use because it was not a fear, but I think it actually is a fear. I think it's the fear of allowing yourself to be so liberated that artificial borders can't prevent you from loving someone. Um, I think that is what is at the bottom, at the base of homophobia is that, wow, this person has the courage to love somebody that they know that if we find out about it, we will kill them for it. And yet they love that person or they have sex with that person anyway. Um, and what does that mean about me and my own desires? Um, I'm gonna read this passage. I just think it's so emblematic of both your language, but this understanding of Samuel and Isaiah, if you don't mind. Oh, not at all. Um, this is from Amos's chapter. When he himself saw them together, now that he saw them, saw them, frolicking in the marsh, hefting bales of hay, and tending to the animals, or just sitting silently side by side with their backs against the barn, feeding each other with bare hands, feet too close together. He nearly glorified their names. He covered his eyes because Isaiah and Samuel were bright and coated in a shining, the likes of which he had never seen. Oh. <laughs> I just, I get teary-eyed thinking about it. It's just such a beautiful image. And thank you is what I want to say about that, about having just, you know, to, to, to say that they were inspiring, that their love inspired the people around them, right? That it made them want to dance, that to, to have them recognize, I think it's, it's sparking in me that my own desire for that, right? To, to not only to be loved like that, but to have people recognize my shining as a result of that love. A lot of the um, Black queer fiction that I've read in the past a lot of it had to do with um, the self-loathing and the um, sort of um, 
pathology around blackness and queerness. Um, I wanted to do something romantic. I didn't want it to be Disney-esque. Um, I didn't want it to be so fanciful that it was unbelievable. I wanted it to be real. I wanted Samuel and Isaiah to have hills and valleys. But at the end of it, I wanted the love to shine so brightly that you had to cover your eyes and not in a way that you were, you know, covering your eyes because you didn't want to see it, but because the glory was so great um, that you, you could only take it in pieces. Um, and I hope I accomplished that. <laughs> you really did. But it makes the denial of that love so, more, so much more profound, right? Yeah. And I think yeah. it speaks to, you know, it's this kind of recurring theme in, in your work and in, in Baldwin's work and Morrison's work, like this recurring theme that there's this, that we suffer from this denial of ourselves, right? Either as, as Black people, as individuals, and that there has to be um, a coming home Right? There has to be a kind of opening up of ourselves again. And you know, this is, this is the legacy of um, enslavement, um, of for centuries telling a people that they are not people. Um, and then um, us liberating ourselves from those chains and trying to um, cleanse ourselves of that idea that someone else put in our minds that we were not people. Um, because I, I see a lot in um, oppressed people this desire to self-police based on the, um, the designs of the oppressor. Um, this pu puritanical sort of approach to sexuality as an example, um, that's not our approach. Our ancestors were dancing naked in the village and did not see that as shameful. And now they're telling people cover up, you have to cover up your body because it's your body's inherently sinful. When our ancestors were celebrating their bodies, you know, that's, that's hundreds of years of stuff to unpack and to, to, to um, get rid of. Um, and I'm hoping that we are moving or that we will move in that direction of um, freedom and liberation. I wanna ask you what's helped you rebel does that make sense if I ask you that? No, that makes total sense. Um, my mother. Um, so a little bit about my family background. Um, I grew up in New York City, in Brooklyn, primarily. Um, born to Joan, my mother, who grew up in a house that was Nation of Islam. And of Robert Sr., my father, who grew up in a house that was AME Zion, African Methodist Episcopalian Zion. Two very strong religious perspectives, um, neither of which had room for me as a black queer person, both of them trying to change me into something that I was not. My mother also did not like the patriarchal structures of the religions that she was, the religion she was um, indoctrinated into. She, there was something inside my mother that was like, I will not be second place to a man. So she rejected her religion outright. That gave me sort of the template 
whether I was conscious of it or, or not, that I too could reject the template. Um, even if that, that policing was coming from my mother, which it was, I could, because she rejected her father and her parents, I could reject the perspectives of mine too. So um, she presented an example that maybe she wasn't intending to present. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that is, that is I think, the, um, the, the seed of my own rebellion. And that's the magic of it as well, right? That I forget who I was having this conversation with, but that, you know, that we're looking and we're watching and we're observing and bearing witness to the people around us and taking lessons from them that they might not be actively intentionally bestowing upon us, right? But that sometimes even from these people who, who we feel might not love us as much as we want them to, there are still some wonderful lessons. E. Patrick Johnson writes about this as well, that, you know, it was his homophobic grandmother who taught him about feminism, right? And that that feminism informed his queer theory. I have, a, I have queer tattooed on my neck. I'm obsessed with him. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I love that, that that rebellion was formed in this, in this way. I would like to try something with you. I've only done this once before, and it was with poet PJ Samuels. Um, but I want to throw some words at you or place some words in front of you and invite you just to freestyle. <laughs> what comes to mind? What do you think? What do you feel? Resist. The first image that pops into my head is a black fist raised. Um, that symbol of resistance, which we limit often to black cisgender heterosexual men, but really that fist is um, emblematic of all of us trying to get free of these um, artificial um, constructs that have us at each other's throats. It's almost like pushing through um, the layers to finally get to, to, to light, to finally get to air, to space, to cosmos, um, to finally make it through. Um, so that's what I think of when I think of that word resist. Divine. Um, when I think of divine, you know, just now what popped into my head was Toni Morrison. That was the first image that popped into my head. And I think maybe that's the reason for that is that I find her work to be so divine. Um, her use of language, the way she transformed English into a space of blackness, um, the way in which she tackles ideas um, about her place as a black woman in this world and what that means um, so much of what she has created um, uh, laid the foundation for what I'm also trying to do. And she is now um, an ancestor. She is no longer with us. And so I think um, her energy is now divine in the most classic sense of the term. 
Didn't she say I stood at the edge and claimed it as central and let other people come to me or something like that to me is a divine act. Ma'am, yes. <laughs> witness. Oh, when I think of witness, I think of the thing that this world needs most is a witness. Um, so often um, we are caught up in our own stuff. We are, um, uh, and by design, we are so busy, um, whether busy working, busy trying to get out from under. Busy being um, black. Sorry, busy I had to take the prompt. <laughs> Listen, bu busy um, avoiding um, police officer bullets, um, busy avoiding the microaggressions at work, busy, mm -hmm. that we don't have the time to look each other in the eye and say, I see you. Um, our journeys are not exactly the same, but I honor yours because the divine in me, going back to your previous word, sees the divine in you. Um, one of the things that prompted me to write The Prophets was that I knew I had to be a witness for something that I wasn't even sure existed because I could not find much in the historical record. But as I was writing it, um, we found out about William Dorsey Swan, mm. America's first drag queen who was formerly an enslaved person. That's right. And, and the first, sorry. No, and, no. and the first person, recorded person to be arrested for a queer protest, for protesting for queer rights. Hey, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. So the, America's just, first drag queen and first queer activist. Um, and I was writing this book not knowing that William Dorsey Swan ever existed because that I, I don't think we learned about him until like 2019 when I had already turned in the manuscript for the prophets. And I thought, hey, see, so I was not making this up. This was not just a, simply a product of my imagination. It was a witnessing. And reading the book, I know it to be true. Like, of course, it's a, it's a, it's a work of art. It's a, it's a work of fiction. But there are truths in this book. I feel them, right? And I think that is true for many people who will read this book, that what you've done is absolutely bear witness to, to that truth. It's honest. Thank you. My last word is sanctuary. Um. I'm thinking of the Jody Watley song now um, about how she, she sings about how everyone needs a sanctuary. Um, and how do we create it? it that, is, that is one of the most confounding words for me because it's always um, inspirational and aspirational, but it's never tangible mm -hmm. for someone like me. Um, in my house, I have somewhat of a sanctuary, but I know that that is always um, fleeting because anyone can come through those doors at any time, unexpected, and destroy what I um, imagine as a kind of sanctuary. Um, I don't think we can have sanctuary until we rid ourselves, as Octavia Butler would have said, this need to be hierarchical. Um, that we allow our intelligence to guide us rather than our um, 
needs to be better, superior, and 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 pathological in so many ways. Um, but you know, maybe one day, there's always this tiny, tiny little optimist in me that says, um, humankind is not what we were and we're not yet what we're going to be but one day we are going to be particularly because of these kind of small these small acts or offerings right busy being black is one such offering the prophets is another like they all add up right yeah um and they touch people one at a time mm. and the 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 um, sort of sad part of it is that we don't always know how busy being black, the prophets, how it's going to, um, what its effect is going to be in, out in the world, how it reverberates, but it does reverberate. We might, we might not live to see how um, changes incrementally were made because of the work that we're doing here, but I guess we have to have faith that the seed is planted. Yeah. I think faith and trust, right, are those kind of interlinked um, efforts. I think they're both, they're both quite an effort. So it took you, if I'm right, 14 years to write The Prophets. And it's well documented why it took 14 years. So that's not where I'm gonna go. <laughs> what I do want to know is how this process changed you. Mm. I am now, I think, a much more patient person. Um, because prior to this, I was a very, very much so a hurry up and get, get this done type person. But the prophet slowed me down. Um, having to navigate so many things while writing it um, made me commit to patience and to time to get up at three o'clock in the morning um, to write for an hour or so before going back to bed and then waking up in another hour to go to work. Um, and it also, I think, deepened my compassion for other people. Even those people that I that I don't like, um, that whose, whose behaviors I deplore. Um, it made me say that is still a person, even if I sometimes wanna go, oh, why, why are you doing this? Um, you don't have to do this. Um, I think I have a little bit more compassion even for those people um, I despise, even for maybe even people like, um, no, I'm not there yet. I was going to say people <laughs> like Trump, but I'm actually not there yet. Take your time. <laughs> I, I'm not there yet because um, people like that, um, like your leader, Boris, whatever his name is, and, mm -hmm. and Trump, um, who are intentional in their cruelty. Yes. Um, I don't know what to have for them. I, I realize that they're a, they are a human being and they were probably corrupted by some experience along the way that made them so awful that they could look at another human being and not see a human being. And I don't wanna be that 
I don't want to look at another human being and not see a human being. So that's where, you know, that's as close as I can get for them. Mm. But I still want them to be held accountable for the for the destruction they're wreaking. Yes. And, and that's a really important point. You know, accountability is not a dehumanizing act. Right. Right. Like we can we can want more from people, particularly those we're supposed to be able to trust. Uh, and that's at a political level and, and a personal level. I love that. Yeah. To close, I ask all of my guests the same question. What do you hope for? I hope um, that humankind can stop defining our relationships to everything around us as adversarial and begin to define those relationships um, as um, communal. Understanding, despite what religions might tell us about our relationship to the world, that we don't have to have dominion over things, that we can be, um, we can have symbiotic relationships to things like our planet, um, that that is this is not um, a trash can. Um, I know the Bible says, you know, God gave man dominion over everything, and so we think, well, well what does it matter if we pollute the earth or um, destroy species, other species, or even kill one another? You know, in the end, we're going to inherit the kingdom. Why don't we live life thinking? that this is our one shot, that there is no heaven, that there is no hell, that there is no God, that there is no devil, that this experience that we're having right now is all we have and treat it as the precious, precious gift um, that it is to treat each other like, listen, I only have one shot at this. So do I want to leave this existence having made it worse or having made it better? I have one more question. It's speaking to me, it's the ancestors speaking to me. What would you say to a young queer black person who has just received their copy of the prophets and are about to sit down to read it? Take your time because it is not a simple work. You may have to read it more than once to glean from it what you need from it. But trust and believe that I wrote this book for you. Robert Jones Jr. is the author of the New York Times bestselling novel, The Prophets, which has been longlisted for the 2021 National Book Award for Fiction. He has written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, Essence, and the Paris Review. He is the creator and curator of the social justice social media community, Son of Baldwin. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer Black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The 10th, Schools Out, and to you, the listeners. Your support of Busy Being Black means the world. 
please do rate and review the show and tell others. The more you do, the more people like us get to hear the stories and voices amplified here. And finally, thank you to my friend and co-conspirator Lazarus Lynch, a musician and culinary extraordinaire based in New York City for creating Busy Being Black's triumphant and ancestral theme music. is in the air at Littleton Coin Company and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.